All right, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start reading in verse 17, taking a break from the Chosen in Christ series. Here at uh, Gospel Grace Ministries, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper today, and I wanted to hear a message connected to that. I've got a lot of material to cover, and I might pick up the speed a little bit faster than normal. And that's easy to say. I'm going to get stuck in the area. I might camp out, but we'll see how it goes. The title of the message is... Uh, Proper Perspective on Worthiness, Seeing Christ in the Lord's Supper. Verse 17, But instructing this, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I partly believe it. For... There must also be heresies among you that the approved ones may be revealed among you. Therefore, when you come together into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper first, and then the one is hungry and another drunken. For do you not have houses which to eat and to drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who do not have? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord what also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And giving thanks, he broke it and he said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supping, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he comes. So that whoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily, he will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks condemnation to himself, not discerning or understanding the Lord's body. For this cause, many of you are weak, sickly, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Now, we've been talking a lot lately about distinctions. Been bringing that up a lot in reference to using that as a tool for preaching, teaching, communicating the truth of the gospel when you're witnessing to people, talking to the people you care about concerning the gospel, talking about distinctions. And another distinction that we can use, I'm going to bring out today, is perspective. What is the scripture talking about, and how is the scripture talking about something from a certain perspective? And, of course, this becomes important when it comes to what something actually means. 
You have to know what perspective the scripture is talking. From. Is it talking about believers? Is it talking about unbelievers? Is it talking from God's perspective? How do we view ourselves? Do we view ourselves the way God views us? Are there certain sections of scriptures that shows who we are as human beings, as sinners? And then there's other sections that shows who we are in Christ. So we have to know the perspective that's being talked about. And today, uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, there's a section of the text concerning taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion. And uh, so this idea of perspective is going to come into play here. There's been a lot said about that, about taking the Lord's Supper worthy versus unworthily. And you go to different denominations, they're going to have different you know, ideas and perspectives about that regarding that very point. So in the scripture, all over the scripture, there are a lot of these examples I could bring up, too many to bring up today, concerning different perspectives. I just want to bring one out. And uh, if you want to follow along, you can. If you don't want to, uh, I've got everything in front of me here. I'll give you the references. But in Matthew chapter 9, in verse 10, we want to look at the idea of sinners versus righteous. So I can prove to you that there are different perspectives spoken of in, in the Scripture. And we need to have a keen awareness of, of how to interpret the Scripture by seeing different perspectives. Matthew 9 and verse 10. As it happened, as Jesus reclined in the house, behold, many tax collectors, uh, King James, I think, says publicans, that's a tax collector, and sinners came and were reclining with him and his disciples. Now, as we look in here, we need to look at the characters involved to see who is in the group and who says what about who. And here's the first. We already saw that they're talking about sinners. And here's the next group. And when the Pharisees saw, they said to his disciples, Why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? So here is the Pharisees' perspective of who they're talking about. They're calling these people sinners. And of course, right off the bat, we should know it's, it's like unlike themselves, right? The Pharisee, remember, stood at the temple, prayed thus with himself, I thank God that I'm not like other people, like this publican sinner. Verse 12, but when Jesus heard and he said, the ones who are whole do not need a physician, whole as in healthy. So Christ is using some language here comparing physical health with spiritual health. And he says here, but the ones that are sick, they're the ones that need a physician. Those that are in need and they're going to eventually be made to know that they have a need. But these ones that are quote unquote whole, in other words, they think they're whole. They think they're healthy spiritually. They will never see their need of this physician. And so he lay, Christ lays that on these Pharisees and he says, uh, go and learn what this is, what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And so we can give some commentary. I have not come to call those that have a satisfaction of their own righteousness 
I've come to call sinners, those that know they need a righteousness, to repentance from their own righteousness, sort of like the Pharisees had. And only these sinners that he came for will see that because they've been shown that by irresistible grace. So the self-righteous, in this case the Pharisees, they had their own righteousness, in other words, a personal righteousness that they were called by Christ righteous in a negative way. So here's the word of God. Christ is the one talking. He shows the story here, and he gives the perspective of what the Pharisees are seeing and saying, and he shows the proper perspective, and he lays it all out, and he says, this is how it is. And he tells those guys, go and, go and learn this, because you're not seeing it. You know, we know the Pharisees were blind. Now, we see other verses that show universally that everybody's a sinner, right? Uh, for all sin that comes short of the glory of God. That's all without exception. So we have to put that in the mix. We have to put all the verses about sinners in the mix and then determine what each one means in its proper context. And comparatively, it's going to bring in distinctions and perspectives. So we know we have experienced, we've been given faith in the gospel, we have experienced forgiveness of sins, and we know what that remedy is. It's of course, we see that in the gospel, Christ has done that for us to clear up the guilt and condemnation problem by the person work of Christ. And probably a popular text we could think of and probably have it memorized by now, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he who knew no sin was made sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So it has these two terms, sin and righteousness. We, as naturally condemned sinners under the guilt of Adam, we have that sin imputed to us, and then we have a sin nature, and then we build up sins on our account. These were laid to, of course, uh, Christ's account at the cross. And that is us. We are sin. And he was made to be what we were in reference to the guilt and condemnation of it so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's the righteousness that God demanded from us. Christ established it, and now it is put to our account. And now we need to have that in mind when we look at all these texts to see what it, when it's talking about sin and righteousness so we can have the proper perspective. Another verse is in Colossians, one of my favorite, chapter 1, verse 21. And you were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. How? In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. So this harmonizes with 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is the activity that Christ performed and perfected his accomplished redemption. And it presents us now in this way, holy, unblameable, unreprovable. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account, which equals the demands of God's law and justice. And we are under the state of the non-imputation of sin. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Nobody. 
So that's where we're at. So we bring that into the perspective of when it's talking about sinners and righteous. First John um, chapter 1 says in verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So here's yet another verse. Now, some people would call all this paradox. Uh, someone goes as far as saying it's a contradiction. A paradox is a seeming contradiction. We know contradiction is just a flat-out denial of the Word of God. But this, if, if we understand perspective, we won't have even have seeming contradictions. It'll rule out paradox. I don't like paradox. If, you, if we're taught the Scripture, there doesn't need to be any. I just think that's a fact. So here, this kind of brings something back in. Uh, Scott, I thought you said that uh, we are holy and blameable and unreprovable and we're the righteousness of God in his sight. We are. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's about perspective. Are we as human beings committing sins that we are to confess and repent of? Yes. Are they charged to our account? No, they're not there. They're gone. Christ already took care of them. So this is a perspective thing. So as, as we know that we are righteous, by faith, God causes us to see ourselves in Christ just like the Father sees Christ himself. This is living by faith. This is walking in the Spirit. This is a perspective you talk about a victorious Christian life, There's the secret is right there. There's no, I don't have to write a 300, 400 page book and, and try to fluff and flower and try to make some money trying to find yourself in the center of God's will. This is it right here. Seeing yourself in Christ, perfect, and that is the incentive to obey God and go forward and serve God and serve others. Simple as that. It's not a secret. It's in the scripture. Most people just don't like it because they don't they can't get credit for it. Chapter three of First John, even within the same book, two chapters later, throws something in there that some would say seemingly contradicts chapter one. Verse four of John, first John three. Whosoever commits sin transgresses against the law, because sin is transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested, speaking of Christ, to take away our sins. <laughs> when people read this, they don't read this verse. This is the verse that I just talked about, the other previous two verses, that we glory in for our acceptance before God. We know that Christ is manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. You can say that two ways, you know, Christ who knew no sin. We could say, in him is no sin. But you know what? Us in him there is no sin. Right? Whosoever abides in him does not sin. And you think, well, I, I thought it said up here in chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The perspective of seeing ourselves by Christ taking away our sins, and we are in him, 
And because we are in him, we don't have any sin anymore. Sin has been put away. So whoever abides in him does not sin. And whoever sin, <clears throat> whoever sins has not seen him, neither has known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. That good point, right? This is what we're getting at. This is why we have to be strong on this thing. Let man, no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous. Even as he, Christ, is righteous. We're going to get to good trees, bad trees later, and it's going to really blend well with this. God's people are only and always accepted in Christ. So that's why we, before we take the first step, we see through the gospel that he was made manifest to take away our sins. We don't have any sins. In the mind of God, we don't have any sins. Christ took them. God punished Christ for that. Sin's done away with. So by faith, we <clears throat> walk in that fashion. And of course, that doesn't mean that's the sin charge card. You know, fools, legalistic fools would charge us with that. And they're going to continue to do that no matter what you say. No matter what you say. You can talk about obedience in a more uh, articulate way, a more biblical way, and talk a lot about obedience. It doesn't matter to them. Because you're forcing the truth of the gospel that our only acceptance is in Christ and not those things they want to talk about. Verse 8. He that commits sin is of the devil. Flat out. He that commits sin is of the devil. In God's mind, those that are in Christ, they're righteous, they're under, they're in the state of the non-imputation of sin. In God's mind, they don't commit sin. The sin is gone. Now some might say, well, that doesn't make any sense because God chastises his people. The sins are gone. doesn't change that. God lovingly corrects his people for whom the sins are already gone because of Christ. So that maybe one of the reasons he may chastise is so they don't get that sin charge card idea. I don't think God's people even have that idea to begin with. I haven't met one yet. I really haven't. For the, devil's, for the devil sins from the beginning, for this purpose the Son of God was made manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now that rhymes with, matches and harmonizes with that. He was made manifest to take away sin. Saying the same thing here. He crushed the serpent's head, bruised his heel, and we get the benefit. Verse 9. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin because his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Perspective. Who's saying this? Who's it to? How do we think about it? Our sins are forgiven. Our sins are past. They're covered. They're done away with. They're put away. 
God does not remember them in reference to any form of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who don't walk in the flesh but walk in the spirit. And with each line you add to that, the legalists will come back and, and put conditions in and say walking in the spirit is something totally different than what Romans 8 is talking about. All right, so there's an example of perspective. I mean, we could have broadened that and gone in further detail talking about sin and righteousness. But I think you get the picture uh, there, and uh, that's something we can learn and grow in and, and see uh, the rest of our lives. All right, so I'm going to go back to our text in 1 Corinthians 11. We want to talk about the first point here, unity in the church. Go over these first three verses again. But instructing this, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. You know, Paul here is saying, you know, you'd be better off not even doing it if you're going to do it this way. Right? That's what I've said oftentimes about these, these churches that are dilly-dallying and compromising. I always tell people, they say, what should I do? Should I continue going there? And, I, you know, I say, well, are you teaching there? Do you have any influence? No. I say you'd be better off going fishing or watching cartoons or sleeping in. Seriously, anything is better than going to the spiritual whorehouse. It does no good at all. So in other words, if you're going to violate the, the practice of the Lord's Supper by not doing it right, not having the right attitude, don't do it. Verse 18, first of all, when you come together um, in the church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I partly believe it. Now, this is in chapter 11. He talked early in chapter 1 about divisions. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of this, these different people. And they, were, they, they had their little preacher clubs, and uh, it's a little competition there. That was not the only division. They had several divisions, but uh, Paul had already dealt with some. I think I have a few verses in here that, that mention some others. For there must needs be heresies among you, so that them that are approved may be made manifest. So in any, any group, really, there are, uh, what, what comes out is when heresies come out and truth counters those heresies, or when truth comes out or heresies bump into it either way, the ones that are teaching the scripture and that persevere in the truth of the scripture, God's people that believe the gospel recognize that and they see who is not approved and who is approved. This has happened here. We've had people come and go. And uh, more people have went out, gone out, than have stayed. And I'm sure as we go along and more people come in, uh, we'll see that. And so uh, there's a there's an activity and a responsibility of seeing that, of discerning what's going on, what's being said, what's held to, what the focus is. Divisions here refers to a schism or a split or a gap. And this is in direct uh, contrariness to being knit together in love. The church is supposed to be knit together in love. Uh, I don't do knitting, but uh, I've seen it. And it's these things threaded together and they're, they're close together and they stay together. And they serve a purpose. Division would be getting scissors cutting through it or getting the string and undoing it, you know, it's destruction. So these two things, of course, oppose each other. 
Scripture uses those words for distinction purposes, of course. I want to read you some verses. Uh, they're just single ones, and you can just follow along or listen. Uh, Romans 16, 17. I exhort you, brothers, to mark those that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. So if people roll through here and they're divisive, um, they like to uh, draw attention to themselves. They like to maybe have the preeminence. They like to cause trouble. They might bring in strange doctrine that divides. They might have an attitude that is uh, suppressive or that is uh, demeaning, which lacks humility, and so on and so forth. You could go on and list all kind of different things. These are ones that will be made apparent that will divide the church and they're to be marked and they're to be avoided because they're detrimental to the church of God. Philippians uh, 1.27, this verse has a double point in it. It's connected to something I'm going to say later, don't have time to get to, but verse 27, only let your conduct be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. So here is a, and I wanted to tie this in, probably won't get to it later, about the doing something in a worthy fashion. I brought this example up before. Somebody's in an authoritative position, perhaps a police officer or something, and they get a charge against them, and it's, uh, uh, or in the military, it's, the phrase is something like, it's unbecoming of an officer. They're put there in a certain position for leadership and they're to conduct themselves. There's a higher standard when a person is in a leadership position. So eyes are on that person so as not to be hypocritical and contradictory. And they are to uh, discern and judge and do things and, and have to enforce certain rules. And if they violate that, uh, many times uh, publicly, it's an embarrassment. There's the charge by leadership above them that's unbecoming of an officer. You're out. You know what I mean? It has to do with walking worthy of what they've been called to do. That's in the secular world and in, the, in, in reference to the church of God. So Paul is telling the people in the church of Philippi that you need to conduct yourselves to it's becoming to the gospel of Christ. Or, in other words, walk worthy to your profession. So that whether I come and see you or am I absent, I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not spying on you. I'm not looking over you to make sure you're doing the right thing. Either way, uh, I may hear of your affairs and that you stand fast in one spirit. It's talking about unity. Striving together with one mind for the faith of the gospel. And terrified in nothing by your adversaries. This is talking about a boldness. Right? So if you believe the gospel, you're assured of it. You're dogmatic about it. You're bold about it. You're not afraid of your adversaries. And, and you're not running around doing things uh, on purpose that they can say, oh, I, got, I, got, I got some dirt on you. You know what I mean? You're not afraid of your adversaries. For this is to them an evident token of their perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. 
chapter 2, Rob had read this a second ago, uh, verse 2, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, this is, has to do with unity, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. There's a lot of that throughout the scripture. It's redundant, which means it's important. So there's the divisions part. Paul calls them out that there's divisions. And he says, I, I, it makes sense because there's, I understand some of the divisions. This is starting to make sense. And he issues a warning about it. Now the next three verses, we're going to talk about members being uh, considerate of others' uh, needs. Verse 20, therefore, when you come together, 1 Corinthians 11, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You haven't been coming for this reason. You've, you've turned it into something else, in other words. For in eating, each one takes his own supper first, and the one is hungry and the other is drunken. you got these extremes going on. From what I understand, I read some commentaries on this. There were perhaps some poor people that didn't have food or couldn't afford food, or perhaps some that maybe traveled from a distance that couldn't bring food, and there were other people supplying food, and uh, they would start it early, and uh, it turned into a party. They just, it was like golden corral, you know, they were bellying up and eating too much and just having a good old time, and then here comes these other people coming in, and what happened? You know, uh, I came for this, for this meal. Because a lot of times, most of the time, from what I understand, the Lord's Supper was connected to a, me a fellowship meal. And um, some would even be drink too much wine and become not sober-minded. And then this thing escalates it. Human beings already have a problem of, of having a tendency to be proud. You add some alcohol to it, jacks it up, right? And this is supposed to be, this is not just a setting in a, in a, um, you know, at a restaurant. This is the Lord's Supper in connection with the gospel. So it's the most serious thing in the world. And they've turned it into this opposite extreme, not considering one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, for whom Christ died. And this memorial supper that is to remind us about the death of Christ. Verse 22, don't you have houses to eat and drink? I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, eat a bunch and, and drink a bunch, do, do it at your house. In other words, when we gather together around the gospel of grace, it's a time of worship and time of advocation. So there is a sense in which, uh, no doubt, this time and this place is set aside or set apart or sanctified. Some call it the sanctuary. You know, I'm, I don't I don't like being religious and saying, you know, get too weird about that. I've seen churches do that, uh, which sometimes goes in the opposite direction where you put religious stuff up and crosses and goofy stuff like that. Uh, and it has to do with wearing special clothes and uniforms and stuff. And uh, Lord's Supper with shiny, shiny instruments. You know, which smacks of Rome, and I'm not wearing a costume because I'm up here in some type of a leadership position. 
and I'm, you know, the, the laity be out there, and I'm the clergy, and I'm dictating what's going on. We're all members of one body. We're all serving. We're all servants. We serve Christ and each other in the gospel. So in other words, if, if you're going to do that, do that at home. This is not the place to do that, he's saying. Or do you despise the church of God? Because it implies you despise the church of God and, um, and shame those who do not have these uh, poorer people or people that you ate their food. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a shame. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? No, I don't, I don't praise you. So there was a situation, of course, you know, they weren't waiting on other people. They were eating other people's food, and, and it sounds more than likely these were, these were poor people, or like I said, people traveling that couldn't bring food. It was more convenient for other people to have food there and wait for them and have food together. There was members drinking too much, so there's all kind of warning in Scripture. Uh, even if people aren't drunk, to, be, to think soberly minded, in other words, don't think foolishly, even when you're not drinking, don't think foolishly. So the emphasis on sober-mindedness is, is throughout. So here we are bringing it down to this time that's set apart to think about the death of Christ and people are not being sober-minded, you know, and that's jacked up with their drinking too much. So there's a self-pleasure involved here and it causes division. And then uh, I read some commentaries and it talked about that some may have even been blending some Judaism in there and trying to infuse some of the some of the traditions of Judaism into it. And the Gentiles were sort of felt divided there because of that. And um, so a division maybe with um, traditions or cultures or foods or things like that may have been taking place which is, is not peaceful in a church that's supposed to be in unity. And you've got a church, you're going to have many different people from many different backgrounds that have experienced different things. And we have to be uh, sensitive to that in a biblical way without compromising. Here's a couple of uh, verses I'm using talking about division. I'll just quote them. 1 Corinthians 1.10, same book that we're looking at. But I exhort you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment or discernment. Now this is right after he warned about these people saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Because when people start like breaking out or breaking away and picking different preachers that they're supporting, they might say, this guy over here says this about this secondary issue, and this guy says this about this secondary issue. And that might bring people further apart and lose focus on the gospel, not just that in issues, but in reference to people, forgetting that the preacher is not like an all-star of those guys that they were naming. I'm of this guy, I'm of this guy. So Paul was trying to bring them around to say, you people are just not thinking right about this thing. 
Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace that's given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but on, 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 on the counterwise, think soberly, think right-mindedly, just like the text that Rob read in Philippians 2, talking about that mind that is in Christ, that we're to have that same mind of humility, not thinking too highly of ourselves. Even as God has dealt to every man a measure of faith, verse 4, for even as we have many members of one body, and all members do not have the same function. Notice, all members don't have, have the same function, but you know what? Every member has a function. That's something some churches forget about. Non-functional members. There's no such thing. That's why when members remove themselves from function and they're done, they're not members. Members are made apparent by being of one mind and being a functioning member of the body. Then having gifts, verse 6, differing according to the grace that is given to us. So that's some pretty clear stuff there. Talking about unity, talking about function, talking about considering one another in, um, you know, looking uh, like the verse in uh, Philippians 2, looking upon the things of others, not like, hey, I see your stuff, I want it, but I, I care about what's going on with you. You know, I, you have a burden, in other words, I want to share your burden. If you have something wrong, I want you to tell me about it. I have, I have something wrong, I want to tell you about it. We pray for each other, problems, whatever they may be. And this is a part of um, you know, a functioning church. So we serve God and serve one another. And this is how we function in the unity under the authority of the same gospel. Now, reasons for the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that was which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread, and having gave thanks, broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, perspective. We don't go Roman Catholic, and a priest does his hocus pocus and changes that bread into the actual body of Christ. It doesn't happen. That's not what this is saying. He's saying that this bread, it represents my body. It's, it pictures it, right? Which is broken for you. And we see the what's going on there. Christ was, he was, as a sacrifice, he was broken. Not talking about his bones were broken because we know that didn't happen. He was, he was killed as a sacrifice. He was a slaughtered sacrifice. That's what he came to do. And he says, you know, this is what's going on. This is what this means. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. This is the key. This is why we're doing it. The reason for the Lord's Supper is in remembrance of Christ. Verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup, supping and saying, this is the cup of, notice this, the new covenant. Right? We're new covenant believers. 
Old Covenant is dead and done and taken away. Christ removed that covenant by the blood of the New Covenant. It's the New Covenant in my blood, which is the second element. you got the body, which is the bread, and then the cup, which represents his blood. As often as you drink it, again, do this in remembrance of me. And he just kind of redundant about it again, and he adds one more thing here. He said, for as often as you do it, that you show the Lord's death until he come. Now, this is a proof text for what I was saying earlier, that this is not the actual body and blood of Christ. We don't. It doesn't transform into we're actually drinking Christ's blood and eating his flesh. But it shows something. We're to remember what it shows. It shows his death. Now, this is kind of the, the meat of the message here concerning examining ourselves. Verse 27. So that whoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup unworthily, he shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, he says something here that should ensure that this doesn't happen by doing this right here. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For because he who eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks condemnation to himself, not discerning or understanding the Lord's body. Now, uh, the Lord's Supper can be eaten and drank unworthily. And that is done by, there's at least three things. John Gill, he just provided these three things. I came up with my own stuff on examples. But uh, unworthy persons, flat out unworthy persons, these would be unbelievers. I didn't read for enough to see what he said they were. I just got these three things and I, I was done with John Gill. Not that John Gill's bad. I mean, this, this is helpful. Unworthy persons, A. B is in an unworthy manner. And then C to an unworthy ends or purposes. These are easy to see. Before we go any further, I want us to see, hear from the word of God, who said himself that he has declared the end from the beginning, and it concerns his worthiness. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, the God who declares the end from the beginning. So I want to, when I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking, in order for us to get any kind of grip on this idea of taking it worthy or unworthy, whether it's talking about persons or manners or to whatever ends, you need to look at this perspective right here. Our acceptance in Christ, the one who is worthy. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. And in chapter 5, I just want to read a few verses here. We're going to be skipping some. I'm just hitting the ones that talk about worthiness. I went to Revelation first because this is the end, right? And then we're going to look at the beginning. And it's all about Christ worthy from the end to the beginning. Chapter 5 and verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loosen its seals? Verse 4. So, that, so there's the question. There's the scene. 
there's a book that's going to be open. Important book. The question's asked, who, who, who's worthy to open this book? Verse 4, And I wept very much because no one was found worthy to open and read the book nor look in it. And then all of a sudden, an old sovereign grace preacher said, Hold on. I remember John Wesley is so close to the throne, I think he might be worthy. I, I can't even see him because he's so close to the throne. He's got to be close to that book. You start to see the ridiculousness of that idea. Verse 9, And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the book and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Looks like they found one that was worthy, huh? This is the final word on this worthiness thing right here. Verse 12, saying with a great voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and blessing. It's a lot of stuff there. You know, there's actually more stuff that could be said, always. But there's a lot of stuff there. This is the one that's worthy. This is the end word about the situation. This is the whole idea of in glorification in heaven. This is what's going on. This is worship right here. Eternal worship of the worthy lamb. Now, let's go to the beginning. I mean, you're, you don't have to turn there. John 1, 1 through 3, you have this memorized, no doubt. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him. There was not anything made that was made. Worthy from the beginning, right? This not only takes in eternity, it takes in creation. When we saw creation there, I don't want you to think, well, he was just started becoming worthy at creation. Eternally, face to face, right? This is the one that the Father, again, chose, elect, precious. We see some more indication in John 17 about this worthiness in connection with his glory. John 17, 4 through 5. I've glorified you upon the earth. I've finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Do you think that glory should be divorced from worthiness? It's directly related. So Christ alone is worthy. And we, as God's people, are accepted and worthy only in Christ. We can read like 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, according as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Somebody that's not in Christ, that Christ has not been made unto them, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, is unworthy. Because they're naked by themselves. And they will appear unto judgment in their own righteousness, and their account will be full, chock full of sin, condemnation, and guilt.
So they're unworthy. That's the first step here of unworthiness is the qualification. You're not a believer. You're not a child of God. You're unworthy. Those that are, their worthiness is not in them. They've been made worthy in Christ alone. You can turn to Matthew 3 if you like. There's some um, more language here about, about worthiness. It's related in verse 7, Matthew 3, 7. But seeing many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, John was baptizing, he said to them, O generation of vipers, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. And do you think to say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father? For I say to you that God's able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And now also, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is cut down and cast in the fire. I indeed baptize you with water of repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than me, whose sandals I am not worthy to even carry. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will cleanse his floor and gather wheat into his storehouse, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So we see a, the word worthy is used twice there, and we start to see some ideas, and we're getting perspective of this word worthy that's being used here. The word worthy brings forth fruits that are worthy. I think in the King James, the word meat is used, M-E-E-T. And it has to do with fit, fitness. And it has to do with deserving, suitable, or fit. It, it matches, in other words, that, that verse we read earlier about make your conduct becoming of the gospel. It's walking worthy. Make it match or fit what you confess. Right? Now, this is not a condition. This is just a, a perspective observation that the scripture exhorts people to do. And this is something that we are to strive to do. There are some things that are in reference to perspective that are emphatic facts and truths that are unchanging. Here's one, Matthew 7, 17. And this is related to some of the other things we said about our fixed position that does not change. Matthew 7, 17 and 18. Even so, every Every, notice that, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. So there's a statement there, statement of fact of what tree does what. Two opposing trees to do different things. And then the next line seals the deal even more. It gets, it gets more distinct. And it says, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Now remember, in 1 John we read, he that sins is of the devil. He that is born of God cannot sin. Same thing right here. The latter part of verse 18, nor can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. It can't happen. It can't happen. So you see these two opposite things. 
And this is this is the beauty of the logic of the mind of God, how he sets these two things at two extremes and says things emphatically. And when we look at this, we, we, can't, we can't bend this and talk about, well, that's talking about, that's talking about your tenor of life, or that's talking about willful sin, which would mean, that means you practice sin. Willful sin means practice sin. And that's what that's talking about. A good tree cannot produce evil fruit. A corrupt tree cannot produce good fruit. Can't be done. Matthew 10, a couple chapters over, 37 and 38 says, He who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son, his daughter, more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So here's another sense in which the word worthy is used. It's, it's talking about fitness or matching what we say we believe. You could put anything in here and add to the list of things that you love more than Christ. Ephesians, here's some practical stuff we want to see here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of your calling with which you are called. And there's a comma, and then it gives some stuff here. It says, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering and forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the way you walk worthy. This involves humility. It involves love, compassion. Remember last week, the week before, the cause and effect? God loves us, causes us to love God and love one another. This is what some of that looks like here. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9. For brothers, you remember our labor and toil. Paul speaking here. For laboring night and day in order not to put a burden on any of you. We preach the gospel of God to you. You and God are witnesses how holy and justly and blamelessly we were to you who believe. Now, Paul here, perspective-wise, we know he's not saying me and those working with me are absolutely perfect like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so holy and just and we're blameless. The perspective is showing that Paul was not doing this for money. He was not doing it for power, for fame. He wasn't doing it for glory. He wasn't putting people under bondage. This is all this is saying. It's bringing all these things together. He said, look, I'm into this. I'm real. Uh, this is, uh, I do all things for the sake of God's elect. That's what he's saying here. Uh, verse 11, even as you know how we exhorted and comforted and testified to each one of you, as a father to his children, and what did he say? That you should walk worthy of God who has called you to his kingdom and glory. So again, he just he just there's several other passages we could have read that are that are just like this. But the idea there is Paul's just saying, you know, make your life be consistent with what you believe. Even if it's just your confession of faith, even that. You say you believe this. 
Are you talking about it? Are you fellowshipping in it? And then certain things follow, fruits from that follow. Thirdly, to an unworthy ends or purposes. Taking the Lord's Supper unworthily to an unworthy ends or purposes. That would be obviously something that sticks out in our minds for salvation, right? Or thinking that that gives us, puts us on some type of a more righteous or holy level because we take of those elements. Like the more you take it, the more holy you are. The more you take it and think you're taking it in a worthy fashion, the more worthy you're just getting, you know, points added up for doing the Lord's Supper each time and you're thinking you're doing it right. And you're looking to that as some type of level that you've attained to. Some believe that it, you know, that's, this is salvific, that it sort of uh, takes away sin by doing it, which is contrary to the gospel. There's some other things here about chastisement, and, and we've run out of time. I read it in an introductory text. This is so serious that it results in chastisement of people being sick and weak and even dying. So it's, it's not a game. But perspective. We believe the gospel. We know that the gospel itself teaches this idea of worthiness. It's not just we look at this thing as a, this is something to learn later about worthiness. The gospel itself teaches it. And if you haven't even arrived there, you're A, in that one category of an unworthy person not to even take the Lord's Supper. So the gospel itself teaches. It's just like uh, James Gillia posted something the other day about grace when it is taught in the gospel shows people that that's not only the gospel, but that is emphasized with that as gospel believers believe that they're taught that it's by grace and they know it's by grace. Some may say God saves by grace despite of what anybody's taught. And so they say, well, God saves people and they believe that they're saved by works and they're still saved because grace trumps their ignorance. Such a convoluted idea. God has the power to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in the hearts of his people. That's part of salvation. So God's people see and know that they have passed from death into life. And that death was their total depravity, their legal condemnation. And they've seen, as we looked in that message a few weeks back, before they didn't seek after God. They didn't understand God. And they had no righteousness. And God is the one that made them to differ. And now they're put on a plane, not by anything they did, all the way through. It's not they did anything to get loved. They didn't do anything to get chosen. Christ died particularly for them. And then they're sanctified by his blood. And then as it comes to conversion and regeneration, they didn't do anything to bring the spirit to them. Every single step of the way, nothing was brought on by them to make themselves to be saved. No spark, no jump start, no nothing like that. No, no even cooperation. God has saved his people. He saved them. They, they are the ones being saved by him. It's not that he threw the life ring out and they were smart enough to grab it. They're dead. They were condemned. No hope except for Christ alone. Something that happened before the foundation world kickstarted this thing off, and they did not participate. And they looked, Johnny Conley looked backwards and looked at the Word of God and says, Salvation is by grace.
All God's people know that to some extent. There are different levels of knowledge later as they grow, but they know that. They know where their worthiness is. It's in Christ. And they know when they look at themselves, zero. No confidence in the flesh. Remember, that's one of the evidences of God's people. No confidence in the flesh. In my flesh dwells no good thing, Paul said. So God's people come together seeing that, that they're unworthy. There are warnings throughout the scripture. If someone has gotten out of the way and they are publicly blaspheming the church and shaming the church, that through the leadership of the church and even, even the membership of the church are to go to those people in a humble, private way and deal with them privately. And if they don't acknowledge that there's a problem, then it shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper. That's clear throughout Scripture as far as public conduct and the way we conduct ourselves and, and everybody seeing that, not just in the church, but outside the church. So there are, there are reasons why some church members either voluntarily would not take the Lord's Supper. But knowing what we know about who we are in Christ, and I would hope that even though by faith you see that we're perfect in Christ, I would hope by your own experience and by reading the Scripture and knowing the way you interpret Scripture by distinctions and perspective, that God's people continue to sin every day. So it's kind of it would be kind of odd or weird for somebody in a in a church like this to say, you know, I've been sinning lately, and I'm not going to take Lord's Supper. I sinned yesterday. I mean, everybody sins every day. Universally, all believers sin every day. It's a lie to say otherwise. Now, the attitude about that is another thing. You know, that's I think this is the key is the attitude. If somebody says if somebody's gotten themselves in a position where they care and they're they're not thinking, I'm not talking about physically drunk, but mentally they're not living soberly and they say, "Yeah, I don't care. Nobody's going to tell me what to do." I mean, it's not like we tell people what to do. God tells people what to do. So, in our own conscience, in our own mind, if we have a tendency to start to just barely start to think that we don't care, then we need to get we need to get a hold of that before it gets, runs rampant. Because if you don't care, what's going to happen next is you're going to fall out of fellowship, and there there'll be no support, no God's people talking with you. Might be praying for you, but they're not working with you and talking with you. And there's no mutual application, and um, gone apostatized it's happened it's happened here before and those that are here that are taking the Lord's Supper I don't think anybody would be thinking well I'm taking it that's that's a sign I've got everything together yeah. if you got everything together come talk to me because I want to learn how to get everything together I ain't got everything together yet again keep looking to our worthiness in Christ that's where it's at we're doing this in remembrance of him, not that the fact we got our, all our stuff together. Because nobody's got their stuff together. I don't think anybody's walking around in a glorified body yet. Any questions or comments?